I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. This week, we are going to talk about Paul Virilio. And if you've listened to the podcast for a long time, uh, you will know that we are both kind of big fans of Virilio and also have some problems with him. We've done a couple episodes on him in the past. Uh, but he just passed away, and we thought it would be a, a good opportunity to do a sort of retrospective and think about really his life and uh, kind of work through, I guess, some of some of the like, big ideas that he had uh, as a Christian on the left who thought about a bunch of things uh, really, really hard. Um, so I don't know, maybe we should kind of just start out, Matt, by talking a little bit about why you got into Paul Virilio. I think we talked about this in the past, but... Uh, it's worth bringing up again. Yeah, for sure. Um, my entrance to Virilio was just in grad school. Um, I didn't have anything to do with him being a Christian. Didn't have anything to do with that side of things at all. Um, I was reading a lot about uh, finance capitalism and speed. Um, and my MA advisor said, hey, you should read Paul Virilio. He has a book called Speed and Politics. And I did. And it was not what I was expecting whatsoever. <laughs> he was way different than the Marxists that I was reading. Um but it was cool. He was a an interesting character and just kind of stuck with me. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, I found him sort of in the opposite way. Uh, nobody at my school told me to read him, but I was just reading a ton of stuff about Christians on the left and came across some uh, interviews with Virilio where he talked about his faith and just got further down the rabbit hole and kind of coincidentally ended up working on things that turned out to be relevant uh, with respect to what Virilio works on uh, in terms of like technology and stuff like that. Uh, so now he's like a major figure in my dissertation, but I found him sort of by accident. Yeah, that's cool. He he started becoming a pretty big deal in my classes too. I mean, I guess because you're interested in him and we were like always talking about him, I started like signing him as reading in some of my classes. <laughs> so we talk about the bunker church and we talk about um well a lot of just like the chunks of really alive and uh, crepuscular dawn and stuff like that in some of my classes and uh, it's cool he's a cool guy and uh, the students love him the young people <laughs> love that paul virilio <laughs> uh they sure do uh in fact as we'll see they they love him a lot he's he's real popular with the kids with the youth um <laughs> uh really neat dude i'm pretty impressed that you assign him to undergraduates uh not because undergraduates are dumb but just because uh, i feel like it would be a challenge to to teach really in that context yeah sometimes um he's a hard person to read even like as not yeah <laughs> even an undergrad right i mean he's not the greatest writer in the world um <laughs> we uh i had a class last year where we read a ton of his stuff about architecture of the oblique and some of his things on uh architecture and design and those are really fun too and and actually i think they were like a little more accessible than some of the stuff he wrote about technology just because um they're, they're like so weird and intriguing like um what if we built like a room and all the floors were crazy slanted <laughs> yeah yeah uh sort of like one of those things that draws you in you want to know more about that right uh well let's uh talk a little bit more about him but before we do we'll kind of introduce who virilia was even um because it doesn't matter that we just like him he also had like a really crazy life and that helps to contextualize i think a lot of 
the themes that we're going to talk about. So we're going to do a little brief biographical introduction here, and then we're going to talk about three themes in his life and work, um, architecture, speed, and the information bomb. Um, just to start out, I guess, uh, some, some basic quick facts, some speedy facts. Uh, Paul Varillo was born in 1932, and he died a few weeks ago, September 10th, uh, 2018, which is pretty wild, given that the next day, uh, September 11th, is like pretty significant, um, just for Varillo's own themes. Uh, and also pretty wild because it's 50 years since 1968 this year, which we'll talk about why that matters. Um, but anyway, he was a bunch of things. He held a bunch of titles. Uh, he was a philosopher, an urbanist, an architect, academic, uh, an anarchist, a pacifist, and a Christian, um, and a lot of other things as well, but you get the idea. He also, like, disavowed most of those titles, too. People would say, uh, you know, Virilio, as a philosopher, and he'd be like, oh, no, I'm not a philosopher. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, okay, well, maybe, like, as an anarchist, and he'd be like, well, I, yeah, like, I'm an anarchist right now, but, like, you know, oh, maybe at that time I would have been something different. So he's he's very, like, cautious about labeling himself, um, but he was a really brilliant and, and critical thinker uh, who thought a lot about technology and a number of other things. Um, yeah, uh, any, any other brief uh, introductory notes, Matt, before we talk a little bit about his life? Nope, sounds good to me. <laughs> uh, so... Biography-wise, Virilio was born in Paris and grew up in the north of France. His father was a communist and his mother was a Catholic, sort of the meeting of our two worlds as well. It's good. Um, World War II and the Nazi occupation of France had a huge impact on his life and um, the way he developed politically and as an architect and in basically every way. I think that like bombings and bunkers are so like key to his work. Um, it is not hard to see how this impacted him. Uh, not only did he live through the uh, Blitzkrieg of Nantes, uh, but also through the Allied bombing as well. So he had the worst of it all. Yeah, literally um, everyone trying to kill him. Right. Brilio is even famously quoted saying, the war was my university. That's an idea that he'll come back to kind of throughout his life in some different ways as well. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And a lot of reflections that he gives in interviews and things like that, he'll talk about being a child in the midst of war and that is really i don't know troubling uh you kind of see like his whole life is is i think set on trying to make sense of that and like working through that sort of shared trauma um yeah just really really intense um but what's fascinating is he ends up like mining those experiences for so many theoretical tools later on uh, after the, the war ended, the Second World War, in 1950, he converted to Catholicism. He was 18 years old. And he says this about his conversion in an interview. I converted in the company of worker priests. Worker priests are, in France, those priests who take an industrial job and go to live with the factory workers. They do not display their pastoral cross. I chose to convert with a worker priest because I wanted something real, not some religious show with a guy in a costume. So that's the tone of his Catholicism as a young person, and I think it's pretty fair to say that that characterizes the rest of his uh, religious sensibilities and also his philosophical sensibilities. Uh, he's kind of always pressing for like for what's real, like behind the costumes, not just of religion, but even of like the societies in front of us. You know, even things that sort of look placid or peaceful, um, he'll often poke a little bit further and, and try to find the kind of troubling real things underneath them. Yeah, that's a pretty good observation. Um, d disappearance is a huge idea in his in his uh, work. You know, the disappearance of illusion and dissimulation, those kinds of things. So, mm -hmm. yeah, good good observation. Thanks, um, I just made it well, up. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Really. Uh, well, uh, after that time, after the war, uh, Virilio, um started sort of his inroad to architecture, but he kind of got there in sort of a weird roundabout way. Uh, Virilio was never trained as an architect, um, but he ended up teaching it in a bunch of places around Europe. So that's pretty cool. Um, but he did have like a lot of ideas about space. And I think a lot of those, again, stem from his experience in in the war. But we can come back around to that. Um, he did get trained as an artist. So not as an architect, but as an artist. Um, he was someone who made stained glass in cathedrals. Uh, it's even another sort of cool art historical note that he worked with uh, Matisse, which is, you know, pretty cool. Um, Matisse is a neat dude. Go to a museum, see his paintings. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're great. 
He only ever designed one building that actually got built. Uh, and that is a thing that we've talked about on this podcast before because it's so absolutely cool. That is what we refer to as the Bunker Church in Nevers, France. He worked on the Bunker Church with um, an architect friend for a little bit and then enemy for a lot of bit, uh, Claude <laughs> Parent. Uh, the two of them had a bunch of ideas about space and what they called the function of the oblique in architecture. And basically, uh, the function of the oblique is kind of like making floors that slope and slant and uh, playing with space with uh, those types of lines. Virilio ended up being a teacher because of his participation in the 1968 rebellion in Paris. That's a big deal in his life, too. I think that's when he kind of really becomes an anarchist. Um, basically, like he was squatting a theater with a bunch of students, and he would give impromptu lectures on space. And after things calmed down, the students nominated him to be an architectural professor, where he just like kept working out some of those theories. That's the that's the best way to become a professor, actually. <laughs> that's a that's a good situation. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Uh, let's uh, let's talk about that for a minute. Like, I guess um, some of those themes that come out in uh, in that architectural moment or period for him, uh, like the function of the oblique. I mean, you mentioned it earlier. All these slopey, slanty floors. Uh, I love it because it's like deceptively simple. Like the premise is, hey, we always build these buildings with straight lines, vertical lines, and horizontal lines, floors and and walls. But what if some were diagonal? Uh, and that's like the crazy idea and it's so funny because in certain interviews people will say okay but what about you know uh like furniture how would you sit down and and have dinner with somebody at a table and he's just like yeah i don't know just like pull it out of the floor like put a table on the floor and sometimes you could like pull it out if you want (laughs) it's like just so silly uh but also really um you know really fun like the idea is that people should think creatively about how to move around uh and if they did that it would maybe change the way that people think yeah totally uh and it's really fun too to see how some of that um early work with architecture principi and claude parent like has a really um like interesting uh not only like architectural style but how he adopts it to really be a reflection of his faith and the way that he thinks that spaces of worship should work too yeah um the bunker church is absolutely like such an interesting thing because from the outside it looks like a giant. Okay, all my students say it looks like a hungry, hungry hippo because it looks <laughs> like a. It's kind of like this weird rounded shape at the front. It looks like the front of like a hungry, hungry hippo nose. But if you look down at it from the top, it's sort of like the shape of an uh, like an anatomically correct heart, and it has all these like subdivisions and divisions about like where you're supposed to sit and how you move through the um you know the space of worship to receive Eucharist and um, where the confession booth is and stuff. So these really interesting ideas. Um, it's also cool too, because it's like, um, you know, if you go to church, um, you always know where the front is because there's like an elevated place, but in, um, in the bunker church, there's like, uh, two sort of sloping elevated places. Um, there's some, some ideas about like equality and sort of like who's, who's the highest up in the room and stuff like that that get messed around with too. Yeah, there's a real theological move in that, I think. I was doing a little bit more research on the Bunker Church just recently, uh, just after Virilia passed away, trying to, you know, I guess, brush up on some of that stuff that I like so much. Uh, and I didn't know this before, but I guess there the there was a bishop in, um, in Nevers where they built the church. And the way the church got built is he held this open competition and they were just accepting submissions, and Virilio submitted this one with Claude Perrant. And uh, so the the bishop, um, he was into like Vatican II, which was in the air at the time. This is the early 60s. And he ended up accepting their proposal, uh, in part, I think, to stir up controversy. Like, that's how Virilio tells the story anyway, that the bishop was like, yeah, some people kind of want a different church, but yours makes everyone upset, and that's the one I want. Uh, but I think <laughs> that, like, uh, theologically, there are actually some cool things happening that resonate with Vatican II. Like, it's not just a, a sort of, like, hey, here's a crazy creative approach to church building. Um for example, like after Vatican II, uh, the priest in Catholic Mass turns to face the congregation instead of facing the wall. And in the Bunker Church, the fact that there are two sloping floors that kind of slope into each other is really important um, just for that sort of uh, liturgical change. Because the, the feeling that you get is that the priest is sort of falling in toward the congregation and they're sort of falling in toward the priest. Like there's this real... Uh, 
destabilization of the hierarchical role uh, of the priest in in Catholicism, which is, like, pretty radical. Uh, Like, it's not just a weird building. It's actually, like, a really weird idea um, and one that people were were trying to figure out how to deal with in the Catholic Church at that time. Um, So seeing Virilio kind of soak in all these different themes and, like, make them his own and, and then, like, spit them back out in a structure like this is pretty fascinating. I actually, I was talking with uh, some friends who had been to the bunker church just this past week. Um, and they were telling me it's crazy because from the outside, it looks so austere. It's like this big slab of concrete. Uh, but mm-hmm. when you get inside, it actually feels very like warm and kind of homey, even though it's still concrete, like there's this, uh, this warmth to it, um, that doesn't get taken away by just the, the sheer material of it. And I think there's something about that that also just feels like very Virilio to me. Yeah, totally. Um, this is okay. Um, I think this is something that is true about Virilio, but you'll have to tell me whether it is not because I know <laughs> it's something that you have written about. So um, the the thing too about the function of the oblique is it's like um, kind of like um, miming um, what happens like after a bunker is struck by like a bomb in the sense yeah. that like the floors get like you know bent in or like sloped in a per- certain direction where there's like a huge crack, and um, so that's true. Yes. Yeah, that is true. Uh, and oh, okay. also, uh, the slopes are intentionally put into certain bunkers with the idea that if a bomb hit it, it would actually like explode in a certain direction, and that like messes up uh, the floors and ceilings. Right. Cool. Well, um, I guess that's that's really an interesting thing then to like put into a church because it tells you a little bit about like, you know, like what the function of the church is in some ways. It's like it's like sort of shielding you from a blow or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I mean, he really says uh, also that he felt that if he was going to design a church in the middle of the Cold War, uh, it would have to be something like this. It would have to sort of speak to like the threat of mutually assured destruction in a real authentic way. And I think there's something about that that is important too. that there's a there's a political statement involved in this. There's a religious statement involved in it. Um, it's really kind of a the bunker church i I always i mean this is like a hobby horse of mine but i just feel like it's it's a good summary of virilia it's like everything that Virilio ever was or or or, you know did or thought about is all there in the bunker church yeah i think that's really true on that point of mutually uh shared destruction and sort of like the apocalyptic kind of feel you get from that idea of like you know the church as bunker kind of shielding you from the outside um, there's a there's a particular type of apocalypticism that I think we can label Virilio with, and it's a really Christian type of apocalypticism. Here's a really cool quote that's from um, Gray Ecology, which is um, kind of like a record of a class that he taught at uh, the European Graduate School. Um, he says this, uh, When someone tells me you're a revolutionary, I say no, I'm a revelationary. And yes, I believe this profoundly. I'm not apocalyptic. I repeat, the end of the world is a concept without a future. There's no interest in the end of the world. One boom and there's nothing left. That is of no interest to an intellectual or a thinker. The end of the world is lame. Um, <laughs> I love this so much because it's like, well, the... the um, Baudrillard's apocalypticism is like, is is like not about the end of humanity because like um, that one's kind of already promised to you in some way and like, who cares? Like once it's over, it's like over. But uh, the end of the world that he's more interested in, or I guess the one that's more concerning to him, are, is the one that we'll survive through. And there's like a a really type of uh, like a type of pessimism that is, I don't know, maybe pessimism isn't the, isn't the right wor- word, but uh, there's a type of pessimism in his writing <laughs> that is like extremely sober about that type of apocalyptic event, the one that yeah. we'll live through, the one that will be shielded from, um, and but will happen nonetheless. Yeah, for sure. Um... That's part of the craziest thing about Virilio is that if you just read his books, I don't think he would come away actually really understanding that sort of uh, like mustard seed of faith or whatever. Um, yeah. But he's very honest about it in personal interviews and in his own life. Uh, and yeah, like that idea that the apocalypse that he wants to avoid is the one that says that there's just an end and that's all. Um, and there's something like equal parts uh like hopeful but also troubling about the idea that humans would survive uh the kind of apocalypse that virilio investigates or the kind of end that virilio like worries about um it's like i don't know like sort of like mad max (laughs) style like possible futures um but virilio is really intentional i think about saying well there are other ways that humans could be 
and I mean, it would be really hard to get there, but like, there's no, no ultimate reason that we can't like, there's that kind of unerasable, uh, like hope against hope that you find in Beryllio. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, maybe we could start talking a little bit more about, um, his like analytics of how the world works and why he might be afraid of that, of certain kinds of apocalypse or, or trying to like warn us away from them. Um, he wrote a pretty famous book called Speed and Politics. Uh, I think that's probably his most famous book. Um, it's short, but he tries to give an overview of a new approach to political thought, uh, one that looks at like movement as a political problem. Um, so like who gets to move and how do they move and why do they move? Uh, all those kinds of, of questions. Uh, and it's also interesting as an intervention into like French politics because he's sort of into like the situationist movement. You know, they're, they're the ones who are famous for saying like, you should just wander around if you want to be a good revolutionary. Uh, but he's also like kind of not in that movement. He has a, a sort of distinct position. Um, so he has his toes in, in revolutionary politics, but he's a bit nervous about them too. Uh, and the book isn't really systematic, but it does try to present some themes and conceptual tools to interpret the world. Uh, it's, I said it's short, but it like takes a very long time to read, I think, cause it's like packed with a lot of like suggestive sentences. Um, but yeah, maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, totally. Uh, I think it, I think you're right to note that it is a short book in page, but not in like how yeah. long it will take you to read. <laughs> um, it's got some hard hard ideas, um, but it's cool. It's a neat book that like uncovers sort of like the ways that movement is so political. Like it opens up, if I recall, um, with like discussions of like protesters in the street versus like fascists in the street, and like yeah. who who controls them. Right. And like how that's how that type of movement who can pass through places is uh, ends up being really political. Right. Um, yeah. Here's a, a quote just from that beginning. Um, I think this is like the first or second page, actually. Uh, he says the revolutionary contingent attains its ideal form, not in the place of production, but in the street where for a moment it stops being a cog in the technical machine and itself becomes a motor, a machine of attack. In other words, a producer of speed. Um there's a lot of interesting things about this quote. Uh, I think if you're like a good Marxist, you'll note that um, he's like definitely throwing some not so subtle jabs <laughs> in the Marxist direction, right? That like the revolutionary contingent, uh, it takes the side to the form not in the place of production, right? Like uh, not strictly as a sort of like identity of being a worker per se, um, but in the street uh, where people can sort of move freely and, and experiment with like what it would mean to kind of break out of the confines of like who lets you move and where. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, anything that really gets you going about that sort of idea, Matt, even though it's not a it's not a Marxism TM concept. Yeah, well, OK. I mean, I think there's a lot in speed and politics, but I guess what makes the point really stick to me in terms of um, like how uh, dromology, which is the word that Virilio uses to talk about this, like, analysis of speed, um, is in a really short essay he wrote. Um, so this is, like, another reference yet to add to your pile of books to read or whatever. <laughs> um, so he uh, wrote an essay. It's really, like, it's um, more geared towards urbanism and city design, which is something I was into for a really short second of you, like, last year. <laughs> um, anyways, but it's called The Overexposed City. Oh, yeah. So he's talking about the ways that... Um, that traffic passes through cities and like sort of his prediction is the way um, cities basically become airports and they're like, you know, less about streets and uh, trains, but more about like uh, the way that you land in them and then you fly right back out of them. Right. Um, so uh, this idea about like the way, um, you know, dromology is about the ways that things pass traffic through them. And that's a pretty wild idea if you start mm-hmm. thinking about it, because I mean, he's not exactly wrong, um, especially considering like the Midwest United States. We got a lot of airports out here, a lot of <laughs> hubs. And like and um, if you look at like the designs of cities, they are they are completely designed to pass traffic through them from like city to airport. Um, if you ever fly into St. Louis, you will see how true this is. <laughs> like the uh, the public transit in St. Louis is uh, leaves a lot to be desired. The train goes to one really important place, and that place is the airport. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's crazy too because I think this idea of like being aware of how people move around is really useful, uh, both analytically but also just practically. Like uh, at a protest I was at, I don't know, sometime 
I forget even which one it was, not too long ago. Um, I was walking with some friends and it was one of these protests where there's like a planned route and, you know, you walk from like this location to another location and we're just chatting, you know, to pass the time, I guess. <laughs> and my one friend was saying, you know, well, how radical do you think a, a protest like this is? And I thought of Rilio because when this friend of mine asked, we were turning the corner at a streetlight um, and there were police officers who had like cordoned off, um, you know, two streets so that cars couldn't go through, uh, but that also that we could go through. And I was like, well, I mean, if it was a really kind of like revolutionary situation, you wouldn't really like be looking to the cops or the streetlight to tell you like where you should go or what direction your mass should be moving in. Um, those wouldn't be like the two kinds of authorities that like direct uh, or regulate like the traffic. And that's not to say that like every planned, you know, march or something is pointless or anything, not not by any stretch. Uh, but it just kind of helps you, I think, I guess, be alive to the idea that you know, if the if the police aren't really threatened by, like, where you're moving, uh, that's at least, like, something to kind of, uh, you know, contemplate, like, while you're doing that walk. Um, there's a there's a sort of, um, like, there's a, a ruling logic at work that still even tries to contain the dissent. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation to draw out. Um, well, on that on that point, riffing off of that whole idea you just said, here's, like, a paper idea out, out here for all you grad students um, <laughs> listening, because you all are probably um so like the black lives matter protests are all like well not all but at least how they represented themselves in st louis area are extremely democratic in the sense that like they were they consisted largely of people blocking interstates um so i mean kind of like going off what you're saying right like a really Mm -hmm. revolutionary movement you wouldn't be looking for the direction of the cops and i think that the the Black Lives Matter protests in Ferguson, the Ferguson uprising, and even in Baltimore too, where people are like literally blocking off streets and like clogging up traffic is a really kind of Virilioian tactic in the sense that it's like, um, it's like a a real nomadic, like mass of people moving into the street and stopping traffic altogether. Yeah, Um, for sure. If you, if you control the streets, you kind of control power for a hot second. And I think that's cool. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, the There's a movement in Canada called Idle No More, which is a, an indigenous um, protest movement. And it's the same kind of thing. Like, So at first, it's really fascinating because they would have protests in shopping malls and they would mm. do these like round dances there. And that was a big deal because shopping malls are weird places full of uh, mobility and a lot of politics and movement, like organized movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that uh, sort of scaled up very, very quickly to shutting down transitways, like roadways, but also like trains and uh, like places where people make deliveries and stuff like that. And it is like the most Virilio thing I've ever seen, I think, because basically what happened is they started asking questions of like, well, how would you really um, shut something down if you couldn't convince like a ton of people to strike or something like that? And it would be mm-hmm. like, well, you would shut down like transportation, right? Like you would you would make it so that uh, maybe you can't like force the workers not to go to work or something, but you can definitely make sure that like production slows down uh, and that slowing down like the politics of time involved in that that just uh, really struck me. I think. Yeah, I think so too. Um, this is also maybe this is like a little bit embarrassing. Um, but uh, during my master's program, I did get to, I got accepted to this one conference. It was like a Christian philosophy conference. Um, and uh, I did write, uh, I wrote about like, um, <laughs> this is actually such a stupid idea looking back on it. Um, but I guess I'll share it to all of our fans on this podcast. <laughs> um, I was thinking about the the ways like uh, work stoppage is like so, it's such a hard thing for like Christians to get their brains around. Like, mm-hmm. you know, striking is like an idea that's really hard to convince Christians of because of right-wing tendencies and ideology in the United States. And I was thinking about the ways that, like, um, <laughs> the ways that, like, um, it was cool with my boss at the time if I came to work a little bit late because I went to morning prayer at church. So I wrote <laughs> I wrote this I wrote this paper about how, like, I don't know, if you think about it, like, uh, prayer is cool because it's, like, doing nothing. It's like a stoppage in your day. And uh, that's something to think about in the face of capitalism. And uh, it's, like, a silly idea, I think, still. But it is cool. Um, I like the idea of, I mean, you know, prayer in Christianity is always supposed to be something so big and, like, you gotta you gotta pray and you're asking God for things, but also like, wouldn't it be cool if like the answer to our prayers was just like showing up and doing nothing and not working? Uh, <laughs> that'd be that'd be some pretty sick stuff. I like that a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that I think there's something there though. I mean, um, it's obviously like 
not a not a complete revolutionary um solution or anything like that but uh there's something to that like even those small sort of like micro uh politics of time um they make a difference and they like make you aware of certain things i mean there are like countries that are more thickly christian in the world where like work all work does stop on like certain holidays and uh not that like i think that's a a really super great idea or anything you know having like super thick religious cultures have a lot of dangers to them too but uh there's something to that right that like uh it's pretty crazy to think of something like prayer being like meaningful enough to maybe uh, slow down uh, production for a minute. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I don't know. So it's a cool idea. If you work at Chick Fil A out there, just be like, hey, sorry, I'm going to be like 30 minutes late and uh, <laughs> just go to church. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, nice. Well, let's add one more uh, piece to this equation here um because the the connection between speed and politics also helps really think about the militarization of society and that's like a huge theme that connects back to what we were just talking about earlier um so for example like it's not just like politicians or specific police officers who decide who gets to move or how um it's also weapons and defenses uh so something as simple as like building a fortress or inventing like gunpowder those are the kinds of things that Virilio really keys in on uh like what does it mean to sort of have a fortified walled city in a way that um you know might not have existed at this or that point in history um and so like as history progresses to this point of being able to like totally annihilate the planet with nuclear weapons uh Virilio says we enter a time of democracy uh where we're like ruled according to these regulated speeds through kind of like an implicit uh militarization that's underneath society so we talked about this a long time ago with the war and cinema stuff um but i think it's worth bringing up again here uh there's there's this kind of like irreducible connection between the rise of like the state and military technologies and speed and that's like another dig at like leninism and uh, the communism of his dad i guess uh that like (laughs) There's a there's some real um, problems for Virilio with any kind of state solution because the state is tied to uh, these kind of military histories. Um, I'll kind of I'll uh, I'll let you jump in in a sec, but I want to read this this quote from Deleuze and Guattari in A Thousand Plateaus uh, because it's actually like surprisingly good as a summary, which is not often what I find in Deleuze and Guattari, but it works here. <laughs> um, so uh, surprisingly clarifying, they write. It is yet another contribution of Paul Virilio to have stressed this weapon speed complementarity. The weapon invents speed, or the discovery of speed invents the weapon. The projective character of weapons is the result. The war machine, which is the state, releases a vector of speed so specific to it that it needs a special name. It is not only the power of destruction, but dromocracy. Uh, I think that's like a really important piece of it, that... Um, like the the habits the social habits that get produced out of the connections between speed and the military aren't just like now people can destroy stuff it's actually like now people can actually regulate stuff there's like a positive like troublingly positive side to uh to that yeah um that is a really cool insight on technology i think and one that gets drummed up in media studies all the time like um Friedrich Kittler, I don't know if you're familiar with him. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. He's like a he's like a media historian. Mm-hmm. He always notes that like um technology is always just the misuse of military technology, like cultural technology, like, you know, TV, cinema, etc. is always just like right. the me- the misuse of military technology. And um I mean that's an idea he definitely borrows from Virilio because it's they were contemporaries. Um and to me it's such a troubling idea actually it's like actually really messes me up a lot um i mean it it really like i i guess even media studies people like McLuhan even get this too right where people people uh have these weird understandings of technology where they're actually completely neutral tools that have like um you know just like no logic to them except the one the thing like the the reason that people might use them it's kind of like the the guns don't kill people people kill people kind of right. thing but, like, I guess what Virilio tells us in, you know, the ways that uh, Duz and Guattari summed up here is that there's something specific about the dramatic, like, the there's something specific about the state, and there's something specific about the, um, yeah, not just the power of destruction that, like, the state can bring, but also its, dr- its, its dramocracy, its own logic of speed, um, and its own sort of, like, yeah, like the other word they use, projective character of weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's so troubling because, like, Okay, like here's here's like a sort of a fundamental, you know, Christian idea 
is like are, is beating our swords into into plowshares, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the repurposing of our military technologies towards like technologies of culture, which are it's hard because like you know you can't have those technologies of culture apparently without the state, without that power of destruction and right. democracy. Right. That is crazy. Uh, someone should write a paper about that. A lot of free paper ideas here. Um, this is all the paper ideas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I think that is actually cool, too, because there's a real, like, anarchist impulse to that. Um, yeah. In a way that I think is actually genuinely really useful. Um, like, it's really it's really complex, and it's trying to figure out, like, both the negative and positive sort of uses of power or, ca- or capacities of, of power. Um, I mean, Foucault does this a lot, too, I think, in a way that's, that's comparable. Um, it's like, instead of saying you should just renounce certain things, it's like, well, these are all the things that we kind of have right now, and we have to figure out how to deal with them. <laughs> like, you can't just mm-hmm. renounce them. Um, I think, well, okay, we should transition to the information bomb, or we're going to talk too much about this. But uh, I do, before we do that, let's talk a little bit about that relationship between anarchism and uh, Marxism and Virilio. Um, so here's a, a fun quote that I think is just a really, like, Nice sod-eye at Marx and Engels. Um, So he writes, uh, Virilia writes, in fact, history progresses at the speed of its weapon systems. And that, I I think, is a not-so-subtle sort of corrective, Virilia thinks, to the uh, Marxist idea that history progresses uh, according to class struggle, right? Like, all history is is the history of class struggle. Uh, So for Virilia, like, there's something underneath that class struggle. There's a, a, a logistics that is playing itself out uh, regardless of classes. And Virilio isn't, uh, it's not like class analysis doesn't matter to him. It, it matters a lot. Um, but for him, like the bourgeoisie, for example, uh, the thing that he thinks that Marx and Engels always forget is that um, though Marx talks about enclosures, for example, in like England, uh, you know, how s- some space gets taken over and sold to, um, sold or bought by uh landowners and landlords um really wants to say yeah but uh those enclosures also have a lot to do with movement and who gets to go where and that's something that the bourgeoisie gets to do they get to sort of make these decisions about like uh how how circulation happens um so yeah any any thoughts about that matt as a person who sort of thinks about these intersections between marxism and anarchism uh i guess maybe both like what do you think Virilio maybe offers to Marxists as a useful tool? And maybe what do you think that Marxists might have uh, some, like what kind of objections might they have? Um, well, it, uh, Virilio definitely does sort of like question the, the, uh, the, the more scientific aspects of like Marxism, I suppose. Like, um, you know, uh, for, for Marx, like the very first fact of human history is about like, you know, how production happens. But I think what Virilio offers those marxists is like well production has to happen through movement i mean you know it's like you can you have to get to work somehow or like you have to figure out how um you're going to negotiate like farmland and like the city or something right like how Mm -hmm. like do you have like a road running through your own property does the city put it there is if it's like more expedient do they get to say like sorry this is our land now we're going to expropriate and close upon it and like take it from you because like it benefits us right i think it's just like i think it gives marxists like another sort of angle um to think about uh material history it's not like virilio is talking about something that's immaterial or idealistic i think he's just talking about a different sort of um I don't know. I'll use a really brilliant word here, like a really like a different vector of history right. or something. Um, like it's a different angle. It's looking at the whole situation, not in terms of production, but instead movement. And I think that is pretty valuable. Just the same. I mean, he, Virilio himself does not make sort of like a systematic um, <laughs> immortal science from his own thoughts, <laughs> I suppose. But like, uh, I mean, I think incorporating Virilio's thought into marxist theory or even into like more anarchist like sort of analysis of the state is completely doable and easy you can you can do it with no problem yeah no i think that's right um and that's what i've found so useful about Virilio too that uh like he'll talk about a political economy of speed he wants to sort of add those qualifiers to like marxist analysis and Mm -hmm. like it's not the worst idea to do that like to have a political economy of speed i mean 
I think sometimes that Virilio does sort of, uh, <laughs> like, in his attempt to combat, like, a, an economic determinism, he ends up with this weird kind of, like, a dromological determinism that I think is not very, like, satisfactory as an alternative, but uh, it's, like, a really helpful um, synthesis anyway, if you can pull it off. Yeah, and I think some of that, too, is just, like, Virilio's own, like, overstating of things in interviews. Like, that's kind of right. part of his rhetoric is to is to go big every single time right extreme virilia <laughs> extreme virilia <laughs> that's right <laughs> um cool so maybe we should talk about for like one hot second sort of the kind of I, okay so i mean speed and politics like movement is a really political idea for sure uh but there's another big problem with speed not just like who can go where but also that speed um necessarily brings what he will call like a science of accidents uh you definitely have heard us say in other episodes of the Magnificast that the invention of the ship is the invention of the shipwreck. And that is a very good Virilio quote that you can throw at people at all times of the day, especially <laughs> STEM majors. Tell them that and they will be astonished by your teachings. <laughs> um, so, Dean, do you want to tell us a little bit about the integral uh, accident and what that has to do with speed? Uh, yeah, uh, let's get into it because accidents are like my, my favorite thing. Uh, I've got so much to say about accidents in my dissertation, which I <laughs> just finished proposing. Um, yeah. All right. Sh- the invention of the ship is also the invention of the shipwreck. Uh, what really means by that is that all technologies, when people invent them, they don't necessarily invent them expecting a catastrophe, but they will necessarily have their own kind of catastrophe. And Virilio says those accidents, those catastrophes, reveal something substantial about that technology. So, like, shipwrecks belong to ships. You can't have a shipwreck without a ship. You can have all kinds of other disasters, but there's something unique about shipwrecks that involve uh, ships wrecking in particular. Um, and as uh, as the world sort of gets faster and faster, Virilio says, not only with, um, like, transportation technologies, like, we can literally move faster, uh, but also increasingly with information technologies where we can like move information around the world like faster than like the speed of light almost uh, like that ends up creating all kinds of opportunities for accidents that we still haven't quite seen. Um, so if you think of something like the Titanic, right, the Titanic is like a really sort of spectacular event, like it's a spectacle, it, it, the Titanic crashes and then, uh, you know, it's it's the ship that that is supposed to be unsinkable. Um, well, that's a, a huge, a huge disaster, but imagine if, like, the internet broke, like, for real actually broke, like, if Y2K really happened, uh, like, people wouldn't have been wrong to have been, like, building bunkers and stock- stocking up on, like, supplies if that was, like, really the case, right? Uh, and so that's what Virilio is, is trying to sort of articulate in some of his later work, I think, is that, uh, as, as the world speeds up, as faster and faster accidents are made possible, uh, we're sort of faced with the possibility of what he will call the information bomb, uh, kind of like the nuclear bomb was like the violent conclusion of like the physical sciences, uh, a the- a speculative information bomb would be the violent conclusion of like the communications technologies. Okay. Here's a good quote. Maybe uh, we can we can start off with and kind of riff off of, I guess, in a hot second. Um, <clears throat> uh, so Virilio uh, says uh, that at the Birmingham summit of May 1998, that's sort of the time period this is all kind of taking place in before the new millennium. Uh, at the Birmingham summit of May 1998, the Central Intelligence Agency not only takes seriously the possibility of a widespread computer catastrophe in the year 2000, but that it has scheduled this hypothetical event into its calendar, indicating on a state-by-state basis how far individual nations will have to go to forearm themselves against it. So this is the kind of thing that really was thinking of um, as... Uh, so he kind of starts off the book talking about the ways that the world is becoming globalized and sort of like enclosed upon... Um, Digitally, cybernetically is the word that he ends up using a lot, but it's kind of like an old-timey word that people don't often use anymore. (laughs) Anyways, but the way that the world is becoming sort of enclosed upon digitally um, by forces that are, um, yes, like like neoliberal in terms of like banking and stuff like that, 
um, and definitely, you know, and like thoroughly capitalist. So the world's become enclosed upon by like uh, a capitalism that is way faster than any other capitalism that's ever been. Um, and then, but, but like at the same time, like, I mean, that sucks. Like that's bad. At the same time, if that capitalism that's way faster than any other, uh, than any other type of capitalism if it just stopped working it would be like catastrophic right that would be um that would be something that it would be very difficult to sort of like deal with and uh i think it is actually so funny because like i remember being alive in the year 2000 and i remember the people that thought that like it was going to be the end of the world and like i don't know i thought they were crazy because like it's not it's not gonna be that big of a deal people just fix that computer problem but it is interesting that he says like the cia was like taking it pretty seriously <laughs> like they <laughs> yeah. were they were worried about it for a hot second so like all right i mean someone's got to be planning all of those weird contingencies <laughs> yeah my uh i had an uncle who um probably is still drinking water bottles that he bought for y2k so uh <laughs> not just the cia yeah right your uncle had it covered too yeah my uncle was uh <laughs> on a state-by-state basis thinking about it um to, to this day the joke is still uh if anything ever bad happens in the world you should just like go to my uncle's house he'll like know what to do um, everybody we'll all go there we'll all meet up there yeah you've got it uh he's got a lot of water um <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i think though uh it's it's fascinating because Virilio is constantly trying to pop the bubble of uh technological optimism or progress um, so you still hear today so many, uh, like technological wonks or whatever, like Silicon Valley types talking about how, um, you know, the digital revolution and computerization of society is just going to like keep improving, 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 um, and keep like making everybody's lives like more convenient. And, you know, Alexa can like turn all your lights on for you, I guess, without you having to get out of bed or something. Um, but, uh, Virilio is always like, yeah, but like, what else could Alexa do though? <laughs> um, <laughs> like, uh, that's kind of his, his impulse all the time is to, to say like, we don't even know what Alexa could do to your home yet. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think that's, uh, man, it's such actually like a, a good, a good forewarning. Um, so, uh, the book Speed and Politics, uh, a really cool, um, designer, kind of guy uh named benjamin bratton wrote the introduction he's great check out benjamin bratton uh really recently he wrote a book that is like extremely virilio expired uh i'm sorry that's extremely virilio inspired (laughs) uh called the stack and uh i think it's really worth everyone's time (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of terrifying well anyways the the whole thesis of the book is basically exactly what virilio is saying here is that like technology and like digital technology is not infallible it's like not um bulletproof right there must be an accident kind of within it that we either haven't seen yet or have seen and just kind of felt like learned how to deal with but um i think what bratton makes so clear in his book about technology is that uh like the ways that all of our digital systems are not like one sort of monolithic sort of thing but are themselves like interlocking systems Uh, of government agencies and corporate interests and banks and all kinds of other things too. Right. And that there's just like, there's too many layers of the stack to really know like what is actually going on in any sort of complete way. So it's like um, the, the sort of like digital technological layer ends up being a type of metaphysics in our lives that we cannot see the, like the corners of even like uh, it's so, uh, all encompassing that we don't really even know all the ways that things connect and this will end up causing us problems and yeah yes he is not wrong <laughs> yeah i think this is a really good way to even link back to what we were talking about at the very beginning with this conversion to catholicism right that uh that refusal of costumes like wanting something real uh that's the kind of thing that really is is trying to point to i think even at the end of his life that um underneath all these things like like when you log on to your facebook or whatever you kind of have a, a a naive understanding that like maybe facebook is like mining your data or whatever and like as of you know at least like a year or two ago like there's no way that if you're a, a sort of moderately informed person that you could know that you could deny that that was happening right like everybody knows that um but even even knowing that uh, underneath all of that there's like still more like that's kind of really his point is that uh like what you know in terms of like journalism is only so far of what you know there's all kinds of stuff that you don't know like still underneath that and if you have a 
uh, I guess not like an expectation of the worst, but like uh, an understanding that history has these kinds of uh, accidents built in. Um, you might be able not to like be afraid of like using technologies as something per se, um, but you might be able to like try to enter into it with a little more like self criticism and like how not only how you use these technologies, but like how they use you in certain ways um, and to like not be surprised when like sometimes you're going to get screwed by them that's like a sometimes being screwed by them is such like a light way to put it <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh like the end of uh he has this book called open sky which is about like surveillance right and uh man if you get to the end of open sky and you like still want to like go outside uh you have a, a very strong power of optimism <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think that's right um well here's another cool quote um that we can pull out and talk through a little bit too from that book um the information bomb um, okay, so he has a lot to say in that book about science and um, the ways that science kind of functions as a discourse within popular culture. And I actually think it's really good um, in a lot of ways. Uh, so uh, he says this. This is really towards the beginning of the book, in case you're following along for some weird reason. Um, <laughs> he says, as everyone knows, that which is excessive is insignificant. Science without conscience is a mere ruination of the soul. And a technoscience without a consciousness of its impending end is, however, unwittingly merely a sport. So then he goes on to ex- describe extreme sports, which is <laughs> a weird turn. Uh, he says, extreme sports, those in which one deliberately risks one's own life on the pretext of achieving a record performance. Extreme science, the science which runs the incalculable risk of the disappearance of all science. I think this quote kind of speaks to um the popular discourse of like science and technology especially with regards to silicon valley um where we think that we can solve kind of all of the world's problems with like a new app or something um when we're not even like really getting something that is scientifically relevant or helpful we're just like getting sort of the representation of science and that's kind of where he goes into like following these two quotes is that like science becomes more about like the presentation of a discovery or a presentation of like a a new piece of technology uh but not really about science in the sense that it makes anyone's life any better it's like science it's it is you know science without a conscience um i do i mean all that being said uh we we can talk about that more but like is really watching the x games is he like (laughs) is really out there like he's got dave mira uh the dave mira game for his ps2 or something like yeah where uh, did he learn about extreme sports who taught him that (laughs) Jeff Bezos is like the new Tony Hawk, basically. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I think there's something to that, though. Um, I mean, I, I think of someone like Elon Musk or, or Jeff Bezos or whatever. Um, whenever I hear that, uh, really a line about um, turning science into a sport, uh, because you do get the impression that um, like inventing a Tesla car is like kind of just Elon Musk way of trying to like break a record or something like that's the feeling mm-hmm. that it sometimes feels or like Bezos yeah. is like trying to go to space right for like literally no reason except that he has like too much money I guess um and that you know for Virilio he, he talks about that as sort of the risk of the disappearance of, of all science um and I think what I like about that is uh like so Virilio is nervous about science but he's not really anti-science per se um he actually like kind of wants certain scientists to you know like the ethical ones to really have a voice um like he's always talking about the scientists that invented the nuclear bomb and uh i mean he thinks that that was a huge mistake obviously um but like every once in a while he'll reference how like a lot of them either uh like committed suicide or um became like kind of humanitarian voices talking about like how it was wrong like what they did was wrong and they needed to like repent of it and and sort of confess it as a sin um and i think that's the kind of thing that virilio is is trying to like remind people that like science isn't just about getting to space or like having an electric car but uh it's also about like recognizing the kind of power that you really do kind of wield yeah i think jeff bezos and elon musk but definitely jeff bezos i mean they're both bad but like Maybe maybe those two are like the perfect sort of Virilio supervillains in the sense that they're both really interested in like the um, development of transportation. Um, I mean, Elon Musk in terms of like electric car, Jeff Bezos and like really efficient routes to like get his 
to get Amazon Prime delivered or something. But also in their both in their like extreme interest in going to outer space. Um Virilio has this really uh interesting take too in Grey Ecology and probably in like three different of his books too. He like says the same thing sometimes. But uh, there's a part, at least in Grey Ecology, where he says, like, once we start looking to, like, uh, inhabit a different planet, like, the Earth is already kind of, like, lost to us in the sense that, like, as like as soon as we think that we can get off of this sort of, like, um, this very limited piece of space and travel somewhere else, then, like, we will no longer understand the Earth as important whatsoever. And it's kind of, like, over ecologically for us. And I, I don't know, man, like, they're kind of he's like, that's right. Like, I don't know, there was a, there's a really huge uh, bummer, I guess, that I felt this week existentially in my soul, where it was just like, uh, there, there was like a, a press release from like the White House uh, people, whoever are in charge of like climate, <laughs> climate problems. Um, I don't, I don't remember especially like who it was, which is bad. I guess I probably could have like prepared for this podcast and like figured it out, but I didn't. Anyways, it was just basically saying that like, uh, by uh, tw- like 2100. 2100 um that like the earth's climate would increase by seven degrees and that like the response from the white house was like i don't know uh changing like emissions of cars like wouldn't help us so what are we gonna do um it's like you know just like kind of like let that slow that slow burn happen um so it's like i don't know people people are already sort of looking towards like inhabiting other inhabiting other planets or like going into space or doing whatever and like um and then like i saw this other sort of press release about the inevitability of climate change and it's just like all hitting me at one all hitting me at once and this like supreme virilio movement of jeff bezos being the most evil person in the world and then the united states like not really caring about climate <laughs> yeah so virilio's right it's all i'm trying to say he's right and it sucks <laughs> it's true uh yeah super true he has a line in uh the art of the motor where he talks about the earth becoming uh humanity's phantom limb which is like a really yeah. interesting way of putting it yeah that's in the information bomb too right uh maybe that's what it is i thought it was in the art of the motor i guess you could say it twice he, who knows i mean he does say a lot of things twice <laughs> and good uh, we need to hear it a thousand more times probably um all right well i think like as we kind of get to the the top of the hour here um we can sort of pull some of these threads together and think about what Virilio passing from this world means for us today. Uh, we talked before on the podcast uh, when we've talked about Virilio um, saying that to say something like uh, Marx is right is like a really different thing than saying Virilio was right. Uh, like saying Marx is right is the kind of thing that you say if you want to have some hope uh, that I mean, maybe it's too bad that he's right about how, how horrible capitalism is. But at the end of the day, like he gives you something to do. Um, but to say that Virilio is right is like a lot more troubling and, and challenging. And I think that as we kind of reflect on losing Virilio as a critical voice, um, at least a contemporaneous critical voice, uh, it's probably important to kind of let that fact that he is right about so many things uh continue to sort of trouble us um maybe with that same apocalyptic uh or like resistance to apocalyptic thinking that virilio himself has you know where like yeah maybe you could have some hope uh maybe you could find other ways of circulating or moving around um but nevertheless uh being willing to stay with the fact that he's right about these really kind of massive problems uh i i sort of feel at least like that's the only way that you could ever uh, get somewhere else is by like owning up to how bad it really is in a certain sense. Yeah, I think that's right. It is a bummer to say that really is right because um, so much of what he's right about is just like how completely screwed people are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just like, I mean, as a human, like it's just like, it's, it's like a, a sense that like, no matter what we do, there's always the sense that the accident is kind of coming and there's really nothing you can do about it because it's the nature of technology um so just gotta stick with the trouble i suppose yeah i think so uh but i guess if you're virilio you would also go to church so who knows <laughs> um that's the optimistic that's the optimistic point though is like yeah. uh technology technology is bad but like uh i don't know the eschaton huh yeah i mean just build your church to look like a bunker i guess <laughs> <laughs> duh <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard in this episode, that's messed up because this episode's kind of depressing if you think about it. 
<laughs> if you like what you heard in this episode, you should go read Speed and Politics, Great Ecology, The Administration of Fear, uh, The Aesthetics of Disappearance, War and Cinema, <laughs> all those good Frilio books. Get them on Semiotext or wherever. Who like Download them. PDFs. Um, also, you could give us money on Patreon. <laughs> uh, that's really cool. All your support uh, that you've given, uh, given to us over the past year or so on patreon has been really awesome and definitely helped us do new things like make t-shirts and make stickers and make uh oh some cool pins that have been sent out to people and make sure you tweet a a picture of yourself with one um it's pretty cool we got one already somebody put it on his hat looks pretty good oh yeah looks great Mm, great hat great hat great pin um, the intro music to this podcast is by Amari Armstrong, and the outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. Uh, so we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord